Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and I've been really looking forward to this particular podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to talk with Brian Zahn for a long time. I've heard him here and there, and uh, certainly have been aware of his books. But when this current book came out, uh, thank you, InterVarsity Press, when Everything's on Fire is the name of it, subtitle Faith Forged from the Ashes. When that book came out, I thought, now is the time. Got to talk to Brian Zond. He is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, or Missouri, depending on where you live. Um, known for his theologically informed preaching and a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> He's, he also has a wonderful embrace of the deep and long history of the church. Uh, I think you'll hear that. That'll come out in our conversation today. And I just want to welcome him to Faith Conversations. Hi, Brian. Thank you, Anita. And and it is Missouri. You know. <laughs> Thank I'll, you. You I'll, live I'll there. I'll go a little more know. over this one. It is Missouri. <laughs> All right. Very good. Uh, I lived in Kansas for a time, uh, and I heard Missouri constantly. I know, but it's it's wrong. <laughs> but if I had lived in Missouri, I would know it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, um, I have been looking forward to talking with you, and the more I read your current book, When Everything's on Fire, the more, the, the more I looked forward to our conversation. Uh, and let me start here. Um, I, I think often, not always, but often authors are writing either to themselves or about themselves. What, what about that is true of you uh, with this particular book? Well, I think part of the reason that I could write the book is I have my own experience with what the book is addressing. Now, I had it much earlier, or at least relatively earlier. Um, the book might be addressing what is popularly called deconstruction. We can maybe talk about that. Not my go-to term, not my favorite term. I don't think it's the best. But when I went through a critical reevaluation of yes. my faith and theology, beginning really in earnest in 2004. So it was a while ago. Um, I mean, I, that was before the term deconstruction was invoked. So I never described it as that. But I do have my own experience with that. So I wasn't writing uh, purely out of theory. I wasn't writing purely uh, as one that was is removed from that experience themselves. So yeah, I'm writing, if not to myself, I'm writing from my own experience. That's for sure. So if you're doing that, um, who are you writing this to? Who, who is your best hoped for audience that, that would pick up a copy of uh, When Everything's on Fire? Well, it's those that feel like they might be in danger of losing their faith that they had at one time. Maybe they just inherited their faith and grew up in it. Maybe they had a conversion experience at some point, but now they're beginning to have uh, doubts. Uh, things are threatening the tenability of their faith. And before they just let it all go, I would like to have a conversation. Can, can I talk about how the book was conceived? Where, yeah, please. That's really please do. Part, part, part and parcel with this. Um, my wife and I, Perry, who I know, you, I know you're a spiritual director. I don't know if you make that known on your program. Yes, I do. But, yes. But uh, my wife is also a spiritual director, Yay. Benedictine trained. Oh, and, wonderful. Uh, and we have taken to walking, the, well, we, we like pilgrimages wherever we can find them, but maybe the most famous and our favorite is the Camino de Santiago. And may I interject? Yeah. Jealous, jealous. I've been dreaming of this for many years. 
<laughs> and eventually it may come to pass. But so right. I loved reading. I'm going I'm to plug this. My wife has Good. a book oh, called yes. Every Scene by Heart, which is an account of our first Camino in 2016. Oh, I'm going to get that. Thank you. All right. So I, I need to say what it is, though, because people might not just know. Uh, yes. The Camino de Santiago is a medieval pilgrim route that was very popular a thousand years ago, more or less disappeared in modernity, and has had a surprising and amazing resurrection where maybe a quarter of a million people are walking it every year. The most popular route begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, in the Pyrenees, and then you cross over the mountains into Spain, and 500 miles later, you arrive in your destination of Santiago de Compostela. And at any given moment, Anita, I mean, I like what I'm doing. I like writing. I like pastoring and preaching and teaching. But at any given moment, I'd rather be walking the Camino. Wow. And how many, so, say this again, how many times have you done this? Uh, three times. Wow. Twice twice on the 500-mile Francis route and once on the uh, Porto route we began, in, or the Portuguese Porto. route we began in Porto. So it was a mere 160 miles. So it was a little... Little, little short one. Okay. Um, but when you walk the Camino de Santiago, uh, it's a little bit like a time machine. You can sense a different epoch because just the nature of it and the churches that are maybe some of them, yes, a thousand years old, and you're encountering them. And when we were walking, this Camino for the third time in 2019, fall of 2019, so little, about two years ago, um, I was aware that there was a time when faith was at the center of Western society and that everybody pretty much just believed in God because of the epoch in which they lived. I'm also very aware that we don't live in that epoch. And I want to say, I, I don't have an over-romanticized view of the medieval age. Uh, I understand it was also fraught with superstition, perhaps, and other kinds of things. I get that. Um, but I also know that something has happened in late modernity that is really presenting a powerful challenge to the sustaining of Christian faith, a phenomenon that Frederick Nietzsche clearly foresaw and described in his inimitable way. Well, I was thinking about these thoughts for about 200 miles, all right? So I was just thinking about this. And then finally, we were at, uh, what was the name of that town? Uh, Castro Haris, okay, the hilltop village, and uh, we'd walked maybe 15 miles that day, and our day was done. And I was sitting outside our lodging on this little terrace, and I thought, because I'm I'm getting, I'm trying to answer your question. Actually, believe it or not, Anita, I haven't forgotten. Hey, I'm I'm loving but the story, so carry if, on. If someone feels like I don't know if I can hold on to my faith, my Christian faith, I feel like it's slipping away. What would I say to them? And I sat there and I and I, I actually the first thing I wrote at the top of this little notebook I had when everything's on fire, because I, I had that sense that that something is happening. And I was probably a little bit already because I'd read a lot of Nietzsche. And so I'm pretty well versed on that. And so I'm, I'm thinking about Nietzsche and, and what he foresees. And we're in that time when everything's on fire. And then I, I, um, I said, well, I would like to say this. I'd like to talk about this. And pretty much that was the 11 chapters. Wow. And I, I really stuck to it. I didn't actually start writing the book. This would have been October of 2019. Mm -hmm. We have to finish the Camino and then that's holidays and things are busy. So I don't really get started until about February or so of 2020. A book that I've entitled, When Everything's on Fire, <laughs> And then <laughs> everything was, everything on, was fire on fire and still so is. It, that's where the, that's what the book was conceived on the Camino. Wow. And uh, it's in lieu of walking with someone for a couple of days on the Camino and talking to them. This is the alternative to write a book to them. That's, that's brilliant. Where it came from, came from, and that's who I'm speaking to. Well, and I think it's really evident as I dug in. And, and when I first started, I thought, uh, okay, I've got to strap in here. You're talking Nietzsche and and uh, who's the other guy right there at the Perfect beginning? Garden. Yes, and I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not ready to dive it, into philosophy. It's accessible, but, but it was just yes. And you, uh, you know, th that wasn't the entire book, and it was, but that was so 
you framed things so well right there, right on the front end that I think was important. Um, and, and I think for me, as I started reading through this book, I, uh, people's names popped into my mind that I thought, oh, I want this person to read this. Oh, I want this person to read this. Oh, I don't want this person to walk away. I want them to read this, you know? So I think we all have people in our sphere that we were looking for some kind of a resource like what you wrote. So high five. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so at that point, so you're, you're thinking of this and you move into talking about this whole deconstruction. Well, deconstructing deconstruction, actually. Um, I first came across not that term, but the term faith shift or mm. faith shifting. And I was kind of experiencing that myself, but not a deconstructing, which right. I don't care for either. I think I believe I read where you said that's too close to deconstruction or de destruction, de de destruction. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's why I don't like it. Cause it's not, cause my faith did not destruct though. I think there are some people who have been on that path and have reconstructed. Certainly it doesn't, you know, but, but talk a little bit about what is happening today in, uh, in our Western world, at least certainly um, with the, the fact that there are a lot of people even some well-known names that we know that are just kind of coming out and saying, I'm kind of done with this Christianity thing. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a real phenomenon. It is occurring. I think it's entirely unhelpful to frame it in culture war terms or to somehow scold people and say, well, just stop it. <laughs> I, I I don't think most people wake up one morning and decide to have a crisis of faith just for the fun of it. I don't okay. think that happens. Yeah. That isn't what happened with me. Now, my, I think maybe the best way I can speak to this is maybe to tell a little bit of my own story. Um, I come from the Jesus movement. I mean, that's where I had my encounter with Christ, and I dramatically uh, was converted. Not every conversion needs to be like that. Mine was. Overnight, I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak, and uh, it was big news in the high school. Wow. By the time I was 17, I was leading ministry that wow. uh, turned into our church. By the time I was 22, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of that church. And you've been at so the same church. I've been the time. pastor of one church, one congregation for 40 years. Which that alone is amazing, considering some of what you personally went through in the middle of that. Yeah. yeah. And so the church, you know, we're, we, we're from the Jesus movement. That leads us into the charismatic movement. It just happens, which I describe as good until it wasn't. Um, but initially it was, it was a positive thing. Uh, but over time, see, you, we were a non-denominational church, but that doesn't mean anything because we're part of a movement. Yes. And one thing leads to another and you don't really have a big choice in it. It just happens. And you're not even that aware of it. Yeah. But over decades, let's say over 20 years or so, mm -hmm. uh, one thing leads to another and you know, it's, it's, Jesus movement, charismatic movement, word of faith, religious right, all of this sort of stuff. Until I, when I hit about 40, I thought, hey, I don't, something's not right. Now, the church had grown very large. So you have to see, imagine me in my early 40s, very large church. Uh, by all of the metrics that Americans like to measure success in ministry. Oh, boy, I, do we. Made, just, you know, sit back and enjoy the ride, BZ. But I couldn't. Mm. And I just felt like, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm going to say this. I'm, I didn't start off as a radical follower of Jesus just to end up as nothing more than a conservative Republican with a Jesus fish on his SUV. <laughs> I just thought I need something, <laughs> you know, I want, I want, I started off radical. I don't want to end up. Mm lukewarm and just accommodating myself and ministry to the wider culture. But were you, were you afraid of what was happening internally and how that would affect um, the church, you know, external yeah, things? Yes. And yes. I mean, 
to be honest, Anita, I hear over the last 15 years, especially since the publication of the book Water to Wine, where I kind of tell this story about making profound theological shifts very publicly while leading a large church. I've had a lot of pastors, a lot, say to me, uh, Brian, I, I don't, I, I can't, they commend me for my courage. They'll say, you were very courageous to do that, to which I genuinely say I was terrified. Okay. I said, I never felt courageous, but you can't, you can't unknow what you know and be true to yourself. And so I just thought, look, I started off not playing it safe. I started off as a radical follower of Jesus, come what may, and I'm not going to stop now. And so that's a message we so need, even though I know this was something that happened a long time ago, but yes, carry on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and so I, I can say this, but I really wasn't having a crisis of faith concerning Jesus. I was having a crisis of faith concerning Christianity, American style. I just felt like preach all day. The Jesus that had captured my heart as a teenager deserved a better Christianity than I knew. And the thing was, you know, you can, it's very easy to be in your own tiny little niche and completely unaware. You know, if you go to some of these great cathedrals in Europe, uh, they'll have these little chapels, you know, it's a yes. massive cathedral. But then you'll have little chapels. And so it's easy to think that your particular chapel is the whole cathedral, or worse yet, that actually you're just in some broom closet and you think that's the whole cathedral. Yes, totally. (laughs) And I began to open up to the whole body of Christ, both in historical length and ecumenical width. And so I began to really try to find the best I, start, I started reading Church Fathers, so I'm getting some sense of theological development over 2,000 years. But also, I'm just, I'm just not going to say stuck in the little narrow, charismatic niche I was in. I didn't need to read any more of those books. I knew them already. And so I began to read Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican and mainline Protestant and Anabaptist. I began to read much wider, trying to find the best of all of them. And, of course, that what happened, Anita, was... Uh, it, it was kind of tell a story here. I'm going to tell this because it's better to have a story. Yes, always. So, so I started off when, when I had this growing sense of unease that things weren't right. I didn't know what to do. So I just started reading uh, philosophy and church fathers, philosophy and patristics. Can I ask a question in the midst of your story here? Were you, when along the way did your wife move into her spiritual direction training? Was that at all an influence? Oh, yeah. 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 And my wife and I were on this journey right together. I wasn't bringing her. She wasn't bringing me. We were right there together. I can't remember the exact dates. That's yeah, that's fine. It was was during that time. Yeah. nice. It was was a result of that as we began to discover something better. um, Perry was drawn to that. Now, so this this story involves Perry. So I was reading, you know, essentially ancient Christian literature. Um, but I was just embarrassingly ignorant of what I call the good stuff. You know, you just, if you don't know, you don't know. Right. That's right. So, mm-hmm. so I prayed one day, this is a, this is an amazing story. I prayed here in my home and I prayed, I said, God, show me what to read. I mean, I had this sense that I needed to be reading more contemporary theology, but I didn't even know where to start or where to find it or what would be any good. I didn't know. Yeah. So I prayed, God, show me what to read. Maybe two minutes later, Perry, having no idea that I just prayed this, walks, she just walks into the room, walks right up to me, hands me a book and says, here, I think you should read this, <laughs> which, is, which is spooky enough as it were, because <laughs> I just great. prayed that it gets stranger. Perry had not read this book. Huh. It gets stranger. Perry just found that book in our house. She didn't buy it. I didn't buy it to this day. We don't know how that book got in our house. Ooh. Somehow I got here. <laughs> she saw it, said, looked at the cover, looked at the back. Eh, Brian might like this. The book, I know this is a cliche, but sometimes it's true. It changed my life. 
it was, it kicked open a door in my mind. And then one thing led to another. And the book is everybody, of course, wants to know. Yeah, I know. I'm dying to know. Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard. Sure. And then I'd found the right string. And I started pulling on that and one thing led to another. And then I find N.T. Wright and I find Walter Brueggemann and Carl Bard and on it goes. And I read voraciously. I was reading academic theology about six hours a night for real for several years and never saw it as work. It was never onerous. It was always like I was a miner. I had struck gold and I couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. So that's a thrilling time. I was like, oh, where have you been all my life? But of course, it's changing my preaching, right? Right. And not everybody. I can remember the Sunday in August of 2004 that I told my church, I said, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. I'm moving on. Now, I did it with enough rhetorical skill yeah. that everybody applauded until I actually did it. <laughs> when I actually began to make changes. Then, you know, and, and especially as I began to c- critique the conflation of Christianity with American agenda in the form of civil religion or religious nationalism, I was able to lose a thousand people doing that. Well, and that was very painful. That was not me just for Perry and I, that wasn't just nameless, faceless right. people. These were people that we'd done life with. Maybe we led to the Lord. We baptized. We married. We baptized their kids. We married their kids. And they were leaving saying mean things about us. That was painful. Can can I also bring up, for for me hearing this story, really, for the first time, um, you were talking about these things that like way before anyone, at least it seems to me, way before anyone else was talking about it or seeing that. There's a sense uh, in which that's true. Okay. Yeah. That's sure what it seems like when I think of the timing, 2004, 5, 6, somewhere in there. That's before what we know in more recent right. days. Okay. So keep, keep and, going. And it's, well, it's why, it, why current issues haven't been a much of a problem at all in our church because we dealt with it 15 years wow. ago at great cost, by the way. Well, yes. Uh, okay. So, yeah. so we were, these are things I don't talk about because I've talked about it elsewhere and it doesn't really show up hardly at all. in when everything's on fire, but it's what it's the experience behind the book. Wow. So, so people know, new to you should go back and read water to wine. Yeah, that, that would, that's actually a very good place to start if you're interested in what I have to say, because you get some of my story that way. Yes. Okay. But um, to, to, to tie it in with when everything's on fire, I use yeah. this analogy in this book that what happened was I, I wasn't doubting Jesus, although that can happen to people too. I get that. But that wasn't my experience. I, I just realized that my theology needed a renovation. It was, we all have our theological house. Yes. Theological house is, is the palace in the mind for Christ the King. It's how we talk and what we think about God revealed in Christ. And, it, and, and we all have one. And it, it, it gets constructed however. Some of it's our tradition, our background, where we go to church, the sermons we've heard, the books we've read, just the opinions we light upon in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's, it develops over time. It's not one thing. It's not a little one-room bungalow. It's a sprawling mansion with dozens of rooms. Well, I reached the point in my 40s, where I was embarrassed by certain aspects of my theological house. I didn't want to have company over. I wasn't ashamed of Christ, but there were certain, I, you know, I know yes. there were certain ways of thinking about things like eternal conscious torment or eschatology or how we understand the, the saving work of Christ, et cetera, that I was just, it didn't seem to correlate with the beauty of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I just, re- and now as I was making these discoveries, I realized, oh, I'm going to have to remodel my theological house. Well, great. But remodeling a house while you're living, you're in living it. in it. We did it. My husband and <laughs> yeah, I, okay, no then, fun. then, you know, yes. it's, it's inconvenient. Pain it's complicated. It's messy. Yep. It's going to cost you more than you think and take longer than you think. <laughs> That's good. That's right. Yeah. And so, um, but but here's here's the point of that whole analogy. Yeah. 
you can remodel certain rooms in your theological house without having to throw the whole thing away. Yes. One of the problems with fundamentalism is that it has the bad habit of tying everything together so tightly and telling you, well, if you, you know, if you deviate one iota from this particular doctrine, yep. then you're no longer in the faith. So it becomes an all or nothing proposition. Yes. Instead of saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to found my faith on Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and everything else is now subject to negotiation. And we can talk about and evaluate and listen to the counsel of the whole church over 2,000 years and over the entire ecumenical width and maybe arrive at something better. Rather than saying, if I can't absolutely 100% agree with verbal plenary inspiration of scripture and that the Bible must be inerrant in every, in every facet, then my other alternative is to not be a Christian. <laughs> See, right. that's, a, that's a case where people have left Christianity but held on to fundamentalism. Yes. I would suggest maybe consider the alternative. Maybe yes. let go of the fundamentalism and hold on to Jesus. Yes. Now, that was never an issue for me. I just, I kind of understood how to do that. And so it was, it was, it was a positive, positive, that sounds lame. It was, it was one of the, it was my born again, again experience. It was, it was, it was that wonderful of finally discovering a, a Christianity that is worthy of Christ. So that was, it was my wife and I together were making these discoveries and thrilled, but being misunderstood, being left, people would say things like, you know, uh, you know they would say, well, well, Brian just turned liberal, which never made any sense to me. I thought, I'm, I, I'm reading church fathers. That's about as conservative as you can get. You know, I'm paying attention to the, to the ancient history of the church. So I didn't see it like that. Or worse, people, because they didn't know what else to say, they would say, well, he's backslidden, which that one hurt because I thought, I, I, if anything, I feel like I'm, I'm front sliding. <laughs> I'm making advance. I'm, I feel like I'm drawing closer to Christ than I ever have in my life. Uh, but I had to also learn how to forgive and let people go graciously, lest it you know, hurt my own soul. But it was a painful time. Um, that lasted for about 10 years. Uh, you know, I don't tell everybody that all the time because it, it will scare pastors to think you can go through that <laughs> for 10 years, but I did. Mm. But I just want to say, and it, by the way, to tie it in, it was walking the Camino de Santiago mm. in 2016 that really healed our souls. And that's part of why we love it so much. We wow. didn't, we didn't necessarily, it was the first break. We, we never had a sabbatical ever. Wow. You know, I, I had never gone more than one Sunday without preaching, you know, for 35 wow. years. And That's we took not our, good. I know. We took our first break and we walked the Camino and we didn't, we didn't know, you know, you, you, sometimes you don't know how sick you are till you get well. <laughs> and yeah. we didn't know how, how much pain we carried in our souls over that loss. Yes. And until it was healed during this 40 day walk across Spain. And we're healed to this day. And the first time we, we didn't know why we went, we just felt drawn, but it was because we needed to be healed. Now we just go back because we love it so much. So, wow. so, so a book was born on the most recent one that are conceived. Wow. I love that. We're just all over the road here, Anita, but I'm, hey, you know. I, I, I love the stories and I, and I feel a, a kinship in the sense that I, I worked for many, many years in uh, radio and left an institution and had that sense that I needed some healing and even struggled with a variety of things, but, um, and in a lot of ways have come full circle in, in the sense that, um, number one, my, my faith never, my faith uh, morphed and changed in certain theological um, Parts of my theological house were renovated. I guess I'll, I'll use your wording. I love that because that's really what happened. Um, but Jesus was always there at the center. And I love how you make that point so well in the book. Um, there's another there's another story that I think is really potent. Um, you talk about, well, 
All right. And may, maybe I'll ask it in um, because one of the questions I want to ask, I want to ask you about Notre Dame Cathedral, but I also want to ask you about where we are currently. You know, you talk about Europe and you talk about where we live here in the United States, um, spiritual climate or the, the religious climate. And also you make some nice differentiations with those words, religious versus spiritual, you know, um, and so maybe, maybe that's really what I want to ask next. Where are we? I don't want to get away from this, this podcast to get away from me before asking, where are we here in uh, America, North America right now, as far as faith goes, Christian faith? Yeah, well, we are in the midst of a tsunami of secularism that will not abate anytime soon. Now, when I use the word secularism, once again, do not hear me as using this in culture war language, as if what I'm saying is if we could just get prayer back in school or the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse, everything. Be, I'm not. Or make I'm people say Merry Christmas. More. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm meaning it much more in a philosophical sense that, look, e even those that are carrying the flag for culture war conservatism uh, are very secular. Okay. Uh, I mean, here, I make this point very early in the book. Uh, there's this sort of accepted truism that Western Europe is deeply secular while America still has a strong and vibrant Christian presence. I disagree with that. I don't think that's true at all. When I'm in Europe and I'm there a lot, you know, not so much the last two years, but otherwise I'm there a lot. Um, I'm always aware of the presence of deep Christian roots that are admittedly often forgotten, but they're there. You, you can be aware of them. Uh, in America, what I see, tend to see, is a veneer of uh, civil religion that borrows from the language and iconography of Christianity very heavily, but is little more than that. And so, um, you know, people say, I don't, people will say America was founded as a Christian nation. I say, no, that was England. <laughs> I mean, England was officially a Christian nation with a state church and all of that. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that is the historical fact of the matter. America launched forth into this bold experiment of secular governance. Again, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on whether that was a good or bad idea. I'm just saying that's the fact. And um, what we have in America is an appearance of a lot of energy regarding something called Christianity, but it's really more of a culture war issue, and it's, it's, it's the civil religion that is not very much at all connected with historic faith. That will play out in time. That will exhaust itself, and then we're in for a long haul. Mm -hmm. of what does Christianity look like in America over the next half century? Well, as Niles Bohr said, prediction is very difficult, especially concerning the future. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but I think I'm on the right track when I say I envision a, a church or a Christian presence in America that is chastened, that is humbled, that is reduced, and that if our children or grandchildren are going to live as Christians, they're going to have to be able to do it in the sense of being counterculture. That is, they're not going to have the, the support of the wider culture, which is, of course, how early Christianity thrived anyway. And so I think that's where we are. I, I, late modernity is no friend to Christian faith. It, it, it presents some unique challenges that began around the 17th century and have been growing, and now they're in full bloom now, and they present unique challenges to the Christian faith, but they're, no by, they're by no means insurmountable. You have, you have some very thoughtful Christians like Kierkegaard and Fyodor Dostoevsky, who mm -hmm. early on in the, eight, in the 19th century had their own journeys through this. Right. Uh, Dostoevsky say, who figures prominently in my book, Dostoevsky saying, uh, it is not as some child that I profess faith in Christ. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. 
And so there is a furnace of doubt, but there are also wise guides and sages who have passed through that furnace, and they are well-equipped to to take us by the hand and say, you can make it through this. Let me help you. And that's part of what I'm trying to accomplish in this book. And, and I love that. I, I underlined that quote. Um, and actually a friend of mine and I have committed to reading the brothers Karamazov for um, 2022. We've just figured out a reading plan to stay on it. Okay. Uh, so, so I know you're going with a question, but I have to do this. I got to yeah. give you some advice. I've read it four times. Thank you. It's one of my big things. I love this book, but I, I always want to say to people, they're just starting, especially if somehow I've inspired them. First of all, read in the correct translation. You okay. need the Pavir Volokonsky translation. That's important. All right. Secondly, some people will say, oh, well, well, BZ, you know, he's found all of this great theological gold mines in, in Brothers Karamazov, true enough. But don't go looking for them. Read it patiently, slowly, and just let just let Dostoevsky tell you his amazing story. Don't go looking for, quote, the good parts. Let it just come to you. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's my advice. All right. Sorry. Hey, thank you. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> tell me again the uh, the translation, the best. Beer and Volokonsky. It's a husband and wife couple. Richard Prevere and I forgot her name, maybe Larissa or something like that's that. Right. Volokonsky. Okay. I've written that down. And, and they're, they're Christians. Uh, the Constance Garnet translation, which has kind of been the standard translation, right. uh, this is not a Christian that did the translating, so he tends to kind of downplay some things. So oh, interesting. Okay. Baron Volokonsky are believers. Uh, she's Russian. He's American. They live in Paris, and they've won all kinds of awards for their Russian cool. translations. Thank you. All right. Well, from that, I want to move to uh, where it's chapter nine in the book, a mystic or nothing at all, because I feel like this, the formational piece is huge. This turned my life around, I feel like, or just, I encountered Jesus in a whole new way when I started entering into uh, probably my spiritual direction training, but spiritual practices and uh, actually, I way before that training, but yes, just in a whole different way. And I feel like the church has left that to the side and that that's really an important piece. So this is a particular problem in the American church. The American church is pragmatic to its to its harm, to a fault. Yeah. It's just it's pragmatic. And 50 years ago, 1971, Carl Rahner. A uh, brilliant German Catholic theologian said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic. That is someone who has experienced something yes. or they will cease to be anything at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was a very prescient statement. Now, what Karl Rahner called the future in 1971 is our today. We have arrived at that future. I think we can just say it today. The Christian of today is going to be a mystic. That is someone who's experienced something or they'll cease to be anything at all, which I think is a little bit of what we're seeing in the phenomenon of so-called deconstruction and people walking away from the faith because it's been founded on something other than their own experience with Christ. Now, the word mystic, I understand that that can be a word that causes some alarm bells to go off in some people's thinking. Uh, I understand the word can be problematic, but I can't find a word that is less so. (laughs) All the alternatives I have are even more problematic. (laughs) So by by Christian mysticism, we just mean the experience of God. Uh, A mystic in the Christian tradition is someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the mystery of God. And the Bible sets forth this as completely normative. I mean, the whole book from Genesis to Revelation is written by and about what we can call mystics, people that are experiencing God in some sort of direct way. Uh, so, so it has nothing to do with like New Age occultism or something like that. Uh, we're talking about Christian mysticism. Yeah. We're talking about experiencing the risen Christ. Okay. So Which, that's, about, that's about as orthodox as you can get. Yeah. Thank you. And in my language that I use. I, I, I like stages of faith theories. And I feel like that many of us were stuck for many years in early stage faith, which was not nothing about experience. 
It was just all law, right. rules, you know, legalism, fundamentalism, et cetera. Well, I mean, I mean, as as modernity, beginning with the Enlightenment and the rise of empiricism, comes into its full maturity, which we're at that moment, I, the the fact remains: you we're not going to sustain faith for everybody through either appeal to the authority of tradition or through just an intellectual argument. Faith is going to be sustained by how it should be sustained, and that is by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation is, is inherently a mystical word because it has to do with something revealed not to the intellect, not to the reason, of which, by the way, I'm not opposed to at all, but revelation is given to the heart. So yes. that, what that means, that's part of the egalitarian nature of God. The intelligent and highly educated are have no advantage over the less so, less intelligent, less educated people in experiencing God. Mm. And so God is not the, now, now to do theology, that's, that's, that is an intellectual effort. Okay, and so that requires some education and certain certain level of intelligence. But I'm not talking about theology. I'm talking about the experience of God, and that occurs in the heart by revelation. What happened post Descartes is everybody got kicked up inside their head, yes. and we're all up in our attic in the in the realm yes. of reason. Which again, I have no quibble with. I, I'm fine with that, except it's not where you're going to experience God. And so I think instead of just sitting upstairs thinking about God, we need to come or trying to prove the existence of God, which is a, a fool's errand. That's the, because once you accept, accept the terms given to you by empiricism, that God must be empirically verifiable. That is through the five physical senses, as if, you know, you can find God, you know, <laughs> oh, you go out to Neptune, turn left, you can't miss him. He's right out. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. So we come down. We, we, we come down into the, into the hearth room, into the heart, into the place where there's a, a warm fire in the heart, and we learn how to, and of course, this is a lot what you're going to learn in spiritual practices and spiritual directions, to encounter God in this place of our being mm -hmm. that we have been told in late modernity is unreliable, and, it's, and it's, we've, been, we've been conditioned to be ashamed of knowing something from the heart. Mm, so, but, so true. And, but, but this is where we need to listen to Blaise Pascal, who really responding to uh, Rene Descartes, who, who, by the way, Descartes was a believer. He was a Catholic and he was a believer, but he also put us on this path that would lead away from that kind of experience. Uh, Blaise pa Pascal famously says, the heart has its reason of has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Now, Blaise Pascal, mathematical genius. He's not opposed to reason, people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he, he has an enormous capacity for rational intellect. That's what he's famous for. But he also knows the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. Mm -hmm. And it is not the revelation of God given to the intellect. Remember, Jesus, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden this. Mm. From the, from the intelligent and the wise, and you've revealed it unto babes. Mm. And, and then that's where Jesus flows from that. That's when he says, now come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Come, come, I'll give you rest. Mm. Take my yoke, it's easy. Take my burden, it's light. And so that's Jesus saying the, the intelligent and the wise of this age have no advantage over the children, and so everybody's invited to come and experience me directly and find the rest for your soul that mm. you're not going to find elsewhere. And so that's a lot of what I'm just, I'm, I'm inviting people into that experience and to found their faith on that. All right. One more question. <laughs> okay. I'm trying, I'm watching our time, but I have got to ask you about the grace of second naivete. Yeah. I started reading this chapter. I, I actually came to a place where you talked about um, uh, the story in Joshua, um, the uh, Jericho, um, yeah. and I just I started to cry, and I was trying to read it to my husband, and I was just like a mess. <laughs> and but to talk a little bit about this. I I this just meant a lot to me, and maybe it was just me, but I, I think this is also important. Yeah. Um... 
the term second naivete comes to us from the philosopher Paul Ricoeur. And the first time I encountered that phrase, it, I don't know, it seemed magical to me. Hmm. Now, Paul Ricoeur is talking about, in general, just about texts. But it's really been religious thinkers that have made the most of this phrase. And so the best way to describe it is to tell maybe a little bit of my own story and how how I have read the Bible. I've had maybe three Bibles, as it were, I'll explain, over the, how long, 47 years that I've been a follower of Jesus. I've just always loved the Bible. I mean, to read the Bible has never been a problem for me. It's just part of my rhythm and life. And so when I first encountered Jesus, I started reading the Bible. And then I found myself leading a ministry and then a pastor and so on and so forth. And I would say I more or less for a long time, probably 20 years or more, I read it at, at a fairly literal level. I mean, I understood that not everything should probably be literalized, but I probably did pretty much read it that way. Mm-hmm. And that there was no problem in it. And if a person can read the Bible like that for a lifetime, I'm not here to trouble them. So be it. Uh, I think most people in the age in which we live will eventually run into trouble reading it that way. Yes. And so as I came into my 40s and I, I, I tell you about, you know, I talk about discovering, you know, good theology and all of that. So I so I start finding N.T. Wright and I start finding Walter Brueggemann for the Old Testament and others. And so. Uh, and then, then I learned about documentary hypothesis and about JEDP and the Yahwehs and the Elohimists and the Deuteronomists and the priestly sources of the Old Testament and all that. I found that fascinating. It never <laughs> threatened my faith. I just, I just love that stuff. And so I spent a lot of time in textual criticism and reading textual scholars, and I've benefited from it. I, that's great. But you know what? I don't want to stay there forever. Mm-hmm. So as you see, I went from a literal reading to a good long period, probably 10 years or more, where most of my reading of scripture was done analytical and it, to great profit. Sure. It, I, I saw, I saw a, an expanse of scripture that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And so I got a new Bible by reading it like that. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to read it that way forever. I don't think anyone would read the Bible that way forever unless they are a professional textual scholar. At some point, you want to return, in one sense, to a, well, Paul Ricoeur, second naivete, to a more mystical reading. So, so I, I read the Bible for a long time, more or less, literally. And then I learned how to read it analytically, and that helped, and that gave new life. But now I'm wanting to read it mystically. So, look, if I read about the conquest of uh, Canaan under Joshua, I no longer have to be troubled. Okay, am I to read this as uh, a divine divine endorsement of ethnic cleansing and genocide? I've I've dealt with all of that. I've read, I've written on this stuff. Okay, I don't don't have to do that. But, But now that I've solved that problem, I don't want to forever just stay there solving that problem. Right. I want to say, oh, no, there are walls that need to come down. And there are giants that need to be slain. And there are victories against improbable odds that need to be won. I mean, sometimes you just need to command the sun to stand still and see God do what you could never do on your own. And so I'm returning to a more mystical reading where I allow these stories to thrill me and yes. enthrall me and enchant me and inspire me. Yes. And, but, but I, but I couldn't, I couldn't just stay. I couldn't go from the literal to the mystical. I had to go through the period of an analytical reading that helped me solve some problems and understand some things, but I don't want to stay stuck there because yes. I think eventually it, it's like you've, you've dissected, you know, when you dissect something, yes, I mean, it's dead. Right. <laughs> I mean, so, so I want it to live again. And one of the things I've done, I was sitting over there in the chair behind me on that, that hickory rocker next to my wood stove. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my Bible reading uh. in the mornings. <laughs> and I've been reading, um, I've been reading the King James Bible. I didn't read the, <gasps> you know, I, mean, 
I, I understand it's, it's not the most accurate. It is the most beautiful. It's what I memorized. It's poetic. It. And it's, it's helping me to remember that I want to read this looking for beauty, looking for mystery, entering into the mystical. Okay. And in some ways, reading King James with its little bit archaic language, but very poetic language mm-hmm. has helped me to remember to read it that way. And this one has the, uh, the one I'm reading has the Gustave, Gustave Doré etching. You know, oh, yeah, yes. all, those, all those famous pictures. Yes. So, oh, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I think wow. I, I'm, not, I'm not very good at trying to explain what I mean by the grace of second naivete, which is why well, I wrote a chapter I'm on gl- it. Because, I'm glad you wrote a chapter on it because it brought me to tears. in my language, but yeah. Oh, it totally brought me to tears in a big way. And, and I thought, yes, that's, that's where I've been before. And I need to go back to that. Um, so Brian, as I read when everything's on fire, this is what I think. I think, yes, this is for the person doubting and struggling and maybe what they might call deconstructing or whatever. This is also for the follower of Jesus that is feeling kind of stale and um, dull right now and needing a new infusion of strength and faith. Um, This is for any follower of Jesus that just wants to be inspired. I think this is for a variety of groups of people, and I cannot thank you enough for, for writing it and also for joining me here today on Faith Conversations. Wonderful, wonderful thank to you. have you. It's very kind of you. Oh, wow. Could talk on forever, but folks, um, that is it for today. And as always, I say, keep the conversation going.